Keep you posted and pastor, watch for Pastor Duane's report this week on all of that. All right, ready for God's Word? All right, we're in Acts chapter 6, and um, I hope you know that as we even talk about this stuff, I hope you know that you're part of, a, of, a, of an imperfect church. You're part of a church that is likely, likely to have conflict. I mean, that's just the normal operating procedure, and I want to put that up front because I want us all, always, to be managing expectations about what the church um, is and isn't and what it's capable of, and, and so you are part of an imperfect church. We don't always get things right, and it's okay because we know that we're part of a long line of imperfect churches that have experienced conflict at various points in their history, starting with ready for this, starting with the very first church ever, the church in Jerusalem, had conflict. And in today's passage, we see this fledgling church, this first ever church, experiencing internal, not external, but internal conflict, specifically complaints. Does that ever happen here? Complaints happen here? Of course they do. Complaints about how a certain ministry was functioning we got complaints about that, with some nagging echoes in Acts chapter 6, some nagging echoes of ethnic tension built into it. And among the things we're going to learn is that nothing's changed, okay? So whatever was happening in that first church, that kind of stuff is still happening in every church today. But also, more positively, how we go about managing conflict in a godly and biblical way. And one step beyond that, how each of us individually, not just corporately as a, as a church, how do we handle this, but individually, each one of us asking, how do I personally respond as an individual member of the church when these conflicts happen? And so that's what we're going to see in Acts chapter uh, 6, because we don't want anything to ever hinder the mission that was given to us by Jesus Christ. And so here we go. This is Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read the first seven verses of this chapter. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, in in your notes and on the screen, this is what uh, you're going to see. Whenever a church faces conflict and difficulties, and you're going to say this for yourself now, again, it's very personal, I contribute to the resolution 
by first, let's look at this, identifying issues to be addressed. We're going to identify issues to be addressed. And by way of principle here, we cannot be in denial of the fact that conflict, as we've said in the introduction, that conflict is normative. Conflict is normative in the church. Because if, we, if we're in denial about conflict happening in the church, we're going to set the church up for a deeper crisis. We're going to idealize the church. You know, I'm going to the church and it's all filled with Christians and Christians ought to, you know, respect one another and be civil toward one another and shouldn't be conflict in the church. If I set up that kind of ideal, then I'm setting myself up and I'm setting the church up for failure. So we don't want to go there. We must always be open to critique, open to commentary, identifying issues to be addressed. Now, the issue in Jerusalem came when the church was riding high. It's not like the church was in crisis. It was not in crisis. It had gone through a period of months and months of overwhelming success and many people being added to the church and just growing exponentially. And Luke writes this in verse 1. Now, in these days, and, and by this point, there's a transition that happens between 5 and 6. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But, but there's, there's, um, there's an evidence here. Every commentator says at least several months have passed by the time we get to chapter 6. And probably as many as 12 or 18 or 24 months have passed. And so there's a big period of time. And what they've seen is just continual growth in the church Carrying on with its mission, the disciples in these days, all these months later after Pentecost, when the disciples were increasing in number, thousands being added to the church, so now they're not even trying to count them and to record that. And, and so ministry success, this is what we have here, a successful ministry, a growing church. Ministry success always breeds new and unforeseen problems, always. It always breeds new challenges. It always breeds new issues that have to be addressed. And these problems, challenges, and issues, if they're not addressed, threaten the ongoing health and success of the ministry. And why would we expect anything different than that? Even as we read the book of Acts, why would we expect anything different than that Satan would continue his assault on the church. Satan did not consider himself defeated at the cross, even though he knew he was. He said, I'm just going to keep at it. Satan did not consider himself defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of God on display. Satan did not consider himself defeated when he saw thousands of people putting their faith in Jesus Christ. His attempts, in fact, to stop the church's advance were initially about persecution. I know how I'll get this to stop. I'll inspire the religious leaders to put the heat on, to throw them in jail, to beat them, to threaten them, to make it difficult on them. Well, that didn't work because persecution just fueled the mission. More and more people came to faith in Christ as they saw the apostles go through that persecution. And so Satan steps back and goes, you know what, I'm going to shift strategies. I can't attack them from without, so I'm going to go inside and I'm going to attack them internally. I'm going to undermine it from within by causing disruption, division, distraction. So here it is, here it comes, a complaint, a complaint 
when I studied this, and as I was writing it, I went to Cheryl and I said to Cheryl, you know what, there's three sermons in these seven verses. I know it seems so simple. It's just a little, there's a little problem. They're going to solve it. The church continues to grow. That just sounds like one sermon. And then as I was studying it, I was like, you know what, there's three sermons here. There could be three sermons. And one of them could be about the nature of complaint. And, and, and we don't have time to go into the nature of complaint here, but a complaint arose. And I just want to say this and get your agreement on it. There are good ways to complain and there are bad ways to complain. Can we agree on that? Everybody agrees? There are good ways to complain and there are bad ways to complain. Okay, so we want the good ways to complain. We're going to say this is a good way to complain. I don't need to preach that sermon because you, you, you all have got it, correct? Everybody's got that? Can we move on now? That's the other sermon that I saw. So a complaint arose by the Hellenists. Now let's, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking, you got to follow this. They're Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. So what happened was, before, before Christ came, there were a lot of Jews who were living in Israel, but then they started going to other places and living in other places. And some of them went to Greek-speaking areas, and Greek was the com- most common language in the Roman Empire at the time. And so they went to areas, and they, they started speaking Greek rather than Aramaic, and they, and they started to adopt Greek customs rather than Hebrew customs. Then some of them decided, you know what, we're going to move back to Israel. And they came back to Israel, and so now they're living in Israel, but they don't speak Aramaic, they speak Greek. They're still Jews. Then the gospel gets preached, and they become Christians. So they are Greek-speaking, Jewish Christians. Everybody still with me? Okay, these are the Hellenists. All right, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who live in Jerusalem and Judea. So a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. These are, more simply, Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians who've always lived in Israel, okay? Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians. And the complaint is this. Their widows, these Greek-speaking widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. The daily distribution was some kind of hope fund, hope ministry, you know, gospel-inspired justice ministry to take care of widows um, in the church. It flows right out of, again, the heart of the gospel. Uh, But not everyone apparently was getting uh, the help that they needed. Uh, These Greek-speaking widows are being neglected. And we could think for a second, because we always want to give the benefit of the doubt, and we may just say, you know what, that was just an administrative oversight. Somebody forgot to check on them. It it was just, it wasn't intentional. There There was nothing malicious going on. It was just an error that, that saw these widows being neglected. But Luke, who's writing the book of Acts here, he makes sure we know that it's a thing between the Aramaic speaking and the, and the Greek speaking. When you see that, you go, okay, there's got to be something to that. Like there's some kind of tension that actually is going on here. So it, it's not necessarily a racial element. We're dealing with a lot of race, race issues these days, but it's not necessarily a race issue because they're all of the same race. They're all Jewish. But it's that some had gone and adopted Greek culture and some were still very much immersed in Israeli Jewish culture. And so if it's not an if it's not a racial thing, it's at least a cultural thing. Two different cultures clashing with each other with language at the center of it. And you can understand this because they lived somewhat separate lives. They even had different synagogues. There would be Greek-speaking and Aramaic-speaking synagogues at the time. And so you, you have this, this element to it, this cultural clash element to it. The Aramaic speakers and the Greek speakers not quite getting along. Now they're in the church and there's this residual prejudice 
I can use that word, some residual prejudice that their salvation had not yet erased. And again, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they were unaware of the prejudice. And I can believe that because I think a lot of us are unaware of our prejudices. You think that's fair? I think a lot of us are unaware of our prejudices. And if we bring this right into what's going on in Canada uh, today um, and some of the racial issues that we're dealing with, and I think some of the most gracious words that I have heard in the last several weeks, um, and this was in the wake of discovering the unmarked grave at the Cowessus First Nation, and their chief is uh, Cadmus DeLorme, and he said this in an interview with the CBC. Um, in the wake of finding those unmarked graves of these residential school children, he said, we all must put down our ignorance and accidental racism of not addressing the truth that this country has with indigenous people. And there's a lot of things I like about that quote. And among them, again, just so gracious, but that thought, that idea that our prejudices are largely built out of ignorance and that our racism is accidental. And so um, if, if, we can, if we can accept that, that, that at times we're simply unaware of how racist we are. We're simply unaware of how racist we are. And nothing is going to get resolved, to come back to the issue at hand, nothing is going to get resolved unless issues are identified and addressed. That's what we're talking about here. The starting point is that we admit that we may not see it and we may need to hear it from someone else. And that's true, not just for the church in Jerusalem as it deals with its issue with widows, but that's true in every facet of our lives, every relationship. You have to identify issues and be willing to address those issues. That's going to be true in your workplace. That's going to be true between you and your neighbor. That's going to be true in your marriage. That's true in your family, immediate and extended. That's true in your small group. That's true on your serving team. That's true in your friendships. It's true in the church. If there's an issue, it must be brought forward and a resolution found. So the apostles, they have a meeting. They work some things out. They understand that there's an issue. They come to a decision, and then they come to the church and they say in verse 2, partway through verse 2, it's not right that we, the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So they recognize that this is, Satan's trying to distract from the primary mission, okay, which is to preach the word of God. And if they did this, if they gave up preaching to go and serve tables, which is what some people are implying... Um, that would play into Satan's hand by distracting the apostles away from the one thing that only they could do according to God's calling. In fact, the apostles especially because they were actual eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Their testimony is critical. So, so a different resolution needed to be found. In, in an, in, in an ever-growing church, an expanding church like the one in Jerusalem, it was critical for these leaders to actually consult with the church, and that's what they're doing. They needed to consult with the church because they could not possibly know what was going on among the thousands of people that were part of the Jerusalem church. 
It was easy for the apostles not to know what was going on, and that's why they called together, verse 2 says, the full number of the disciples to lay out their decision and their plan, their course of action. Again, this is not an arrogant display of status on the part of the apostles, but a rational organizing of the church to ensure that the vulnerable among them were actually cared for. It's not that the apostles were considered themselves, you know, we're above serving table. It's not that at all. Remember that, that they had been with Jesus in the upper room. He had washed their feet in John 13. They knew what it meant to serve. They had gone to jail and been beaten for serving according to their gifts, calling, and passion. So there's no arrogance here. But there is a recognition that each one must serve according to the gifts and passions that God has given them in order for the church to work properly. And Paul lays this out. If you're taking notes, just jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and read the chapter where Paul lays it out, different gifts, each one working together for the better of the body. And in this case, the preaching of the word and the ministry of prayer must not be neglected to do something that others were quite capable of doing. And here's what Kent Hughes says about it, and and I love the way this just brings it together and summarizes it. By divinely directed delegation, the apostles not only freed others to grow in their service to God, but they freed themselves for prayer, preparation, and powerful preaching. Thus, the spiritual ministry of the church was enhanced rather than what Satan was intending, distraction and division and disruption. All right, so that's the first one. Whenever a church faces conflict and difficulties, I contribute, you're saying this for yourself, I contribute to the resolution by identifying issues to be addressed. We just looked at that. And secondly, by seeking to be part of the solution. Sadly, too many people in the church are more than willing to be part of the complaint. Lots of people willing to step up to say, I see that too, and yeah, I don't think that should work that way. Lots of people willing to step up to the complaint. Who's willing to step up to be part of the solution? The 12, again, they appeal to the full group to be part of the solution. Church, we need to be part of the solution. And they put it on them in verse 3 saying, now here's what we want you to do. This is the plan, but here's your part in it. You need to pick out from among you seven men, and their names are all Greek, so we're assuming all of them were Greek-speaking so that they could properly care for the Greek-speaking widows. Okay? Pick out from among you seven Greek-speaking men, seven of the Hellenist men, whom we will appoint, the latter part of verse 3, whom we will appoint to this Duty. Now, before we go any further, we need to talk about this word duty here because generally we are not fussy on this word and we don't want to think about what we do in the church as a duty. We don't like the word. Part of it is because it just sounds so obligatory. It sounds like we're being forced to do it. It sounds like I have no choice in the matter. In fact, we, you know, the word that we favor around here to distinguish between You know, those who get a paycheck and those who don't, we use the word volunteer. And I 
I just don't like the word. I've never liked the word. I'm not sure there's a better word that we can use. It's the word we use. We've got to recruit some volunteers to work in kids ministry. We have to work, you know, recruit volunteers to work in production and worship. You know, we're constantly recruiting volunteers. We use that word. But I don't like it because it sounds like we have more choice than we really do in it. It sounds, it makes it sound like serving Christ is an option. And that's why I just don't like the word. In fact, if you look at the word duty that, 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 um, that's used here by the apostles, the root word of it is it's something that's needed. It's a necessary thing. It has to happen. New American Standard Translation puts the word task in here. The one I like best in terms of translation, though, is the NIV. The NIV puts the word responsibility here. And when you see responsibility, you just go, okay, well, like, I have to do it. I have to do this. And I, we ought to all understand that a Christian who does not serve, a Christian who is not engaged in some needed ministry, that Christian ought to be considered abnormal in the, in, in the church. The normal pattern for a disciple of Christ, and, and by the way, part of the evidence that you're actually saved is that you take up your responsibility and you work for Christ. That's how we describe it here. You work for Christ. It is your duty, Christian, to do so. So there it is, okay? The apostles say, we're going to appoint the, the guys that you choose, we're going to appoint them to this responsibility, this task, this duty. Now, to be part of the solution as we think about this, to be part of the solution means being personally engaged in the life of the church. And again, the apostles ask for help of the congregation because they can't possibly know the thousands that are in the church. We need some, we need some good men. We don't know everybody in the church. We need some good uh, servants of God to step up and to lead uh, this task. Uh, you know the people in the church, you know the people in your circle, you don't know everybody, nobody can know everybody, but you know some people, and maybe you know somebody who would fit the, fit the bill, would fit the responsibility we're looking for. This is how the church is supposed to be set up. In fact, Paul would write to the Ephesian church, and here's what he would say. This is Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. It gives us such a great insight into how the church ought to operate. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, he got, you know, God gave us, Jesus gave us leadership in the church, okay? The apostles were one time witnesses of Jesus, personally commissioned by him to carry out the ministry. We don't have any of those today. But these other uh, leadership roles we have, primary leadership roles in the church are shepherds and teachers. We have these leaders to equip the saints. That's all of you. That's the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, it's the saints, it's the members, it's the Christians, it's the body of Christ that's to be carrying out the ministry. Why? For building up the body of Christ, to make it stronger, to carry out its mission. And so it is the responsibility of the leadership of the church to leverage the strength of the members of the church to resolve issues within the church which threaten the mission given to the church by Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So that's what they're doing. And they, they lay out these qualifications. Here's the, here's the guys we're looking for, okay? These are the kind of servants we're looking for. Verse three, right in the middle there. They have to be of good repute, so people need to think well of them. Good reputation. They need to be full of the Spirit. They just need to be, be obvious. 
that they're Christians, like evidence of the Holy Spirit working in their lives, and they need to have wisdom. I mean, they need to be smart enough, have the chops, the competencies to be able to administer this program so that we're not going to have to return to the same issue three weeks from now and find out some of the Greek-speaking widows aren't getting their food again. We need them to be smart around all of this. So they needed spiritual servants who were competent. And you keep in mind that these seven were being appointed, like they, the spiritual qualifications are so strong, but these seven are being appointed to a most basic task, organize teams to serve meals without prejudice to widows. That's the task. Godly character was needed even for this most basic hang, hands-on task that they were given. And all of this so that the leaders, the apostles, could continue, verse 4 says, to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, here's the thing. This is the way the church is set up. And I, and I want to give you one more illustration of this so you see that that's what we're seeking to do right here. I'll take those t-shirts right now. So check this out. We just had Air 5 this week, and thanks for these. Um, so we, they're really warm. Were they on your lap? They're really warm. So um, these are the Air 5 t-shirts that were given out to those who were serving this week. And the thing is that you might think that the reason why they're all different colors is just because Jeannie likes a lot of color and it was pretty. And so that's why everybody wore different color t-shirts. That's what you would think. But there's exactly Acts chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 4 happening right here. There's only one pink t-shirt. There's only one. The name is right there, Miss Jeannie. So she's the grand poobah. Like she's in charge of the whole show. And what's really cool about watching her this week is from my perspective, watching her, it didn't look like she was working at all. She was just walking around, enjoying the scenes, talking to a parent, talking to some kids, answering an occasional question, carrying a clipboard, I think, so she looked official. I don't think she was using it. I think there was nothing on it. But she was in charge. She did all the work ahead of time. She organized all the teams. And here's the thing, only one pink t-shirt, but six orange t-shirts. Do you have any orange t-shirt people in the room right now? Anybody who wore an orange this week? So these, these orange people, I don't even know what they were called, but these were, the, these were the administrators. They weren't involved with any kids. They, they, were, they were just running the whole show. And if, if you had a question, you didn't go to a pink shirt. You didn't go to Jeannie. You went to one of the orange shirts, and they could answer your question. But there was only six or seven of those. And then... One might think that this is a blue t-shirt, but it is not. It is sapphire, I have been told. <laughs> this is a sapphire t-shirt. And, and the sapphire t-shirts, let me get this right now, these were, these were station directors. So they were in charge of a, a larger group um, of, of kids and leaders. They were responsible for like a whole section of something happening. And again, there was a greater number of those in orange, but still not as great as Let's see, um, what was this one? The maroon shirt. And these were team leaders of kids. And so you got to get all the way down. You got to go four t-shirts down before you find a leader who's actually working with kids. You need all these other people to make it happen. But these are the boots on the ground people. These are the ones, in the case of Act 6, these are the ones who are actually delivering the meals to the widows. Okay? And we have, we have some maroon people in the room, I think, right? 
Sarah, you were a maroon person, right? Running one of those team, being one of those team leaders. And then gray. I had a gray t-shirt, which means I had no responsibilities. Well, that's not exactly true, but I was in charge of nothing. So I just meant I came and I prayed on the first day with, with all of the servants. And I was at a door a before and after the day started. And I just said hi to parents and hi to kids. That was my entire responsibility. Parking people, junior leaders. We have an incredible crew of junior leaders who helped. And, and um, all these other servants who are just, these are the worker bees who are just making the whole operation happen. And again, um, working with kids if they were a junior leader, but otherwise doing very um, menial tasks, if you will, to, to make the whole operation work. And that's a very colorful picture of what's happening here in Acts chapter 6. And everyone, I'm so pleased when I see this, it is so satisfying to come here and see the whole operation working. And you see what the reaction of the church was in verse 5 at, at what the apostles said. It pleased, it pleased them. They were so happy with this solution and they immediately went to the task of choosing the seven uh, who humbly, that's an important word, humbly accepted the task, two of which were Stephen and Philip, who we're going to hear more about in the coming chapters. That word humbly is so important because this, this quote came across my, um, my inbox this week. The best protection one can have from the devil and his schemes is a humble heart. If there had been no humility to accept a task, to accept the plan, to appeal to the, to the apostles, if there had been no humility, the devil would have had his way, the church would have been distracted at worst, at best, and, and divided, and off mission, disrupted at worst. And it takes humility to be part of the resolution, part of the solution, a legit complaint was brought in a godly and helpful way. And the apostles continued their ministry undistracted. Seven men stepped up to serve in a new way. All the widows were cared for. Some tensions were alleviated along the way. And the church learned more about what it means to be the church. And everything about that is awesome. And we should seek to emulate. All right, let's talk about this next. Praying, praying for those in leadership, so critical. Praying for those in leadership. If this is going to happen, if it's going to work, we need to pray for those in leadership. Billy Graham said this, you cannot pray for someone and hate them at the same time. You cannot pray for someone and hate them at the same time. And hate, hate such a strong word. I don't even want to use it. But here, here's it. Leadership invites, I'll change the word. Leadership invites dislike. As soon as you become a leader, there's going to be people who don't like you. That's just the way it is. Christians can be very hard on each other. True. Christians can be very hard on each other and doubly so with leaders. I mean, it's as if members feel like they have permission to criticize everything a leader says and does. Unjust criticism would be tempered I believe, would be lessened if more prayer were offered for leaders in the church. It's always the right thing to pray for your pastors, your elders, your staff. They remain, and this is the reason why, they remain the primary target of Satan. He's the one that, they're, you're the one, leaders are the ones that Satan is going to go after because Satan knows, take out the leader, you crush the church. 
So the seven, they're about to take on this new leadership role. They're going to now be elevated up in the midst of the entire congregation. And so the, the, the apostles are wisely praying for them. Verse 6 says, they brought them up. They set them before the apostles. The congregation, we picked these seven guys. They put them up there. And, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on them, commissioning them to this task. Because they knew they are now a target. And when we get together next Sunday and we look at the balance of chapter 6, we're going to see this. Stephen immediately becomes a target of Satan's attack. And also they know this, and the reason why they're going to pray, they also know this, that the power and impact of this ministry, of any ministry, comes from the Holy Spirit in the leaders and in the members. That is to say, their gifts and service are actually a manifestation of the Spirit. And so his presence and power must be invoked. And as we say uh, here at Harvest, if we don't pray, nothing else matters. The serving of widows, the preaching of God's Word, the teaching of children, the playing of music for worship, the mixing of sound and video, the greeting at the doors, all of the serving that happens here, none of it amounts to anything apart from prayer. It's just, it just becomes, without prayer, it just becomes a nice thing to do, like volunteering for the Red Cross. That's what it becomes. The weight of this ministry on your elders, pastors, directors, on our staff team, the weight is heavy every day. Many great things are happening in this church and lots of other churches, and Satan wants to disrupt that. He wants to distract us. He wants to cause division. He wants to get us off mission. And so we need to pray for those in leadership. We need to seek God's face for His protection, His wisdom, His empowerment in our leaders. And again, that's modeled for us here. And then finally this, when, not if, when, not if a church faces conflict and difficulties, I personally contribute to the resolution by anticipating God's continued work. I anticipate God's continued work. It's, it's so easy, and so many do this, that when a church starts to go through difficult times, and again, every church goes through difficult times, but when a church goes through difficult times, it's easier to write the church off and just to say, I knew they were like that. Um, Christians shouldn't behave that way with each other. Um, we're going to go and find a better church. We're going to go and, and find a church where there's no conflict, which does not exist. That is, that's mythological. That's a mythological church that you are searching for. That is a fairy tale that you are telling yourself. So we're going to anticipate instead, rather than cutting and running, rather than writing the church off, we're going to anticipate God's continued work. And we've been at this long enough. I mean, Cheryl and I have been here 20 years. We launched the church 20 years ago. Um, September, we're going to celebrate in the coming ministry year what God has been doing over these 20 years. So we've been at this long enough that we know what it's like to go through issues like the one in Acts chapter 6 and worse than what was going on in Acts chapter 6. We also know because we've been through those times 
and stuck it out, we also know there's incredible blessing on the other side of every challenge you go through. On the other side of every trial, there's greater fruitfulness. And it's in long-term relationships. Listen to this now. It's in long-term relationships and enduring commitments that we see the greatest benefit to the church, the greatest benefit to our own spiritual health, and the greatest success in mission. Success in God's kingdom is measured certainly not by quitting, but by perseverance. And so they've just come through this issue that threatened to tear the church apart, but it was resolved in a good way, And and notice what happens on the other side of this. Verse 7. The Word of God continued to increase. No distraction. The apostles not taken away to do anything else. All the widows being served. The Word of God continued to increase. It's actually an agricultural term there. That the seed was planted, the plant grew up, and fruit was being produced from the Word of God. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly, more people being saved in Jerusalem. And then this note, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now in Jerusalem proper, at the temple, there were 70 who were part of the the Sanhedrin, part of the Jewish council. They were the primary rulers of the nation. But there were thousands of priests who had trades and lived all over Israel and who would come to the temple once per year for two weeks and serve. And it's that crowd of priests who are saying, you know what? Those priests in Jerusalem, they got it wrong. This gospel I'm hearing, this is the fulfillment. This is the Messiah. And a great many of these priests became obedient, became followers of Christ. Now, there's a subtle shift that takes place at the start of Acts 6, and it shows additionally that God is at work Back in chapter 1, verse 8, you'll remember this verse. Of course, it's the key verse for the entire book. It's the Great Commission restated. Luke had recorded this commission given to the apostles by Jesus at his ascension, and he said this, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So three tiers here. In Jerusalem, you're going to start here, then you're going to move out to Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. And God uses, even even as this, this mandate is being given, it's actually, it's, it's interesting because it's a table of contents for the book of Acts. It, it's, it's Luke's structure for the book laid out according to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So Acts 1 to 5, which we completed last week, all focused on what's going on in Jerusalem. But right here in Acts chapter 6 and going through to chapter 12 now, we're going to see an expansion out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding area. And then from chapter 13 on, which primarily deals with the Apostle Paul, from chapter 13 to 28, it's going to be the end of the earth as the gospel spreads out from Israel. And so God uses this crisis. This is always God's way. God uses the crisis to advance his mission in the world. This is always God's plan. The greatest crisis in history was when Jesus Christ was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. The world went dark. There was an earthquake. It was a shattering time when Christ was crucified. The greatest crisis in all of history. History divided by this event. 
But on the other side of that, the greatest victory, the greatest fruitfulness, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and everything that we're experiencing today with his salvation being offered to us. God always uses the crisis to advance his mission in the world. And we've seen this. More than a dozen years ago, at the darkest moment in our church's 20-year history, people were very upset and complaining. And I heard people say to me that the Holy Spirit had left our church. They would meet with me before they left, and they'd say, the Holy Spirit has left our church. It was harsh and a bit arrogant to even presume to know that. Many were angry. Many complained in an unhelpful way. But most stayed. We lost a lot of people, but most stayed and had a sense that God was indeed still working in us and through us. And there was evidence of that. And there still is. And so in the face of tensions and neglected widows, I I wonder if some of the Jerusalem church people there thought the same. Oh, look, the apostles don't care about our widows. Oh, they say that they love one another, but they're not serving meals to these people. Oh, look at the tensions between the Greek speakers and the Aramaic speakers. This church is, is just like everything else. There's no evidence that Jesus is really transforming anyone. They're really just a bunch of hypocrites. Could you see that they might have been saying such things? They could have been thinking such things. But that wasn't the case at all. With the members of that church humbly contributing to the resolution of the issue that they were facing and God continuing to work among them. And so the the question that we're left with here at the end of this message is really this, how will you respond when, not if, the next issue arises here in this church? Will you be part of the solution? Will you be humble? Will you pray? Will you keep serving? Will you anticipate the thing that God is doing through the challenge and then on the other side of it? Because he's always at work. Let me pray for us. Father, we um, have heard your word here today and we're grateful, God, that you are so patient, long-suffering with us, that you, you strive with us. And God, we know that we have a predisposition as sinful human beings. We have a predisposition to mess things up and to do it wrong, sometimes in our ignorance and sometimes willfully. But God, you have a predisposition to heal, to show your grace, to make things right, to make things beautiful, to produce fruit. And so God, please continue that work in this church and in each individual member of it, that you would receive the glory. God, help us all to consider what part we play in all of that in being part of the body of Christ. And we're so grateful, God, that you have knit our hearts together around this great mission and in this body. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.